Good morning, everybody. It is so good to see you this morning. Thanks for joining us here at GFC today. And uh, if you didn't know it, we are starting a new series today, and it is an exciting series in the book of Judges. And so I'm so glad that you uh, are here today and that you can go on this, start this journey with us. Um, If you don't know me, my name's Andrew, one of the pastors here at GFC. And before we dive into the book of Judges, that's one of the things we need to do today. But there's actually something else that I'd like to do. I have a little announcement to share with you guys. And uh, coming this spring, uh, Baby Krug will be arriving. So, yeah, Amanda and I, we're super-duper excited. Um, So grateful for our church family and the support system we have. But, uh, yeah, Baby Krug's going to be coming. So trying to fill up that nursery, keep it going, you know, keep GFC alive. So trying to do our part. So, Yep, so super excited. Okay, we need to put that excitement on the shelf because we have a lot to do today. Because we are about to enter one of probably the craziest, most fascinating books in the Bible. The book of Judges. Now, if you uh, haven't read it, that's okay. You're going to go on this journey with us and we're going to need to just strap in. Because the book of Judges is full of uh, stories and a lot of them are really bizarre. A lot of them have just these crazy things happening. There's a lot of violence and gore. There's uh, different corruption that happens and all sorts of things. And if you're not ready for it, if you haven't read it before, it can be a little jarring. It can kind of catch you. and Like, whoa, what is this? But I believe the book of Judges has some deep, profound truth to teach us today. Even as modern people, as we read this book... And as we might scratch our heads at like, why is this in the Bible? Why did God allow this? What is going on? If we, if we go into this book, I think with a humble posture, and there, there's a lot that we can take out of it. I think there's a lot we can learn about what does it mean to be a real disciple of God? What does it mean to uh, like this sinful human condition that we all struggle with? What does that actually look like? And I think the book of Judges has a lot to say about those kinds of things. And if you've grown up as a Christian, and if you've heard these stories before, um, you might be used to them, and they may not catch you um, like they would if you've never read them before. But oftentimes, I've found that the book of Judges, these stories can kind of be just painted as, as just good moral stories. But really, as we dive through and we look at the different judges, who are these different tribal leaders during the time and whatnot, we're going to see that, man, maybe these stories are actually trying to teach us how not to live or how not to be a disciple of God. This book has everything in it. It has high moments. It has low moments. It has heroes. It has villains. It has everything. It's awesome, but it can be a little challenging. So uh, are you guys ready to dive into Judges? All right. Well, before we get there, we're going to get the context of Judges because We can't just rip it right out of the Bible. The book of Judges takes place in the broader biblical story. So that is where we're going to start. So we have a slide we could put up just on on these different kind of a couple core pieces of the biblical story that lead up to where we find ourselves in the book of Judges. So uh, if you're familiar with the biblical story, this will be no news to you, but it's good to get context. So the Bible starts off with creation and fall. In the very first book of the Bible, book of Genesis, God creates a perfect world, and then humans come along, and do we do a good job? No, we don't do such a good job. We mess it up. But the awesome thing is right 
after we mess up, God promises that a future rescuer will come. You can read Genesis 3.15, and a future rescuer will come and will save humanity from their sin. God then, this rescue plan, he zooms in on this guy named Abraham and his family throughout the rest of Genesis and then throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And God promises Abraham a couple of things. One, he promises that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him and his family. He, he tells Abraham, hey, you're going to become a great nation. And he tells him, hey, the land of Canaan, which is now modern day Israel, that land that's promised to your family. Uh, and if you know the story, Abraham has a son uh, named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob has 12 sons. And by the end of the book of Genesis, are they living in the land of Canaan? Nope, they're down in Egypt. They're not in the promised land. But then God rescues his people out of Egypt, and he takes them to a place called Mount Sinai. And there he makes a covenant with them. It's basically like a marriage ceremony. God's like, hey, I'm going to covenant to you, to this family and to this people group, the Israelites, because by that point, it's not just a small family, it's a huge nation. And God tells them, hey, I'm calling you to be a kingdom of priests in this world. Like, that sounds pretty cool. Actually, if you read in the New Testament, as Christians, we're called to be a kingdom of priests. But he calls his people to be a kingdom of priests, meaning what a priest would do is they would mediate between a deity and the rest of the people. They'd kind of stand in the gap. That's what the priests in the Old Testament would do. But God calls his people to become a kingdom of priests to the world, meaning the people of Israel were meant to mediate to the rest of the world. Hey, this is who the real God is. This is how we should follow him. This is how we should worship him. And God wants to then put them in the land, the promised land, so they can do that. But if you continue on through the story, we get to Numbers chapter 11. God brings them to the promised land. And do the people want to go in? No, they don't. They don't want to go in. They're too scared to go in because the people living in the land are scary. They're bigger, they're badder. And so they're like, we don't want to go in, God. And God says, okay, I'll give you what you want. You don't have to go in, but I'm going to give the promised land to your kids. So then that, that generation wanders in the wilderness for 40 years. They pass away. And then the book of Joshua comes, and God's people are entered into the land, and they're starting to take it over. They're starting to have a conquest in the land and driving those people out. And the book of Joshua then ends with Joshua dying, and the people are in the land, and the conquest is still happening. And that's where we step into the book of Judges, in the middle of the conquest of the land. Now, before we open up into Judges chapter 1, uh, at this point, the, the room might feel a little, a little differently about the book of Judges. Maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, all right, I can't wait to get into this. There's going to be action. This is going to be awesome. Uh, like as we read through the conquests in the book of Joshua, if you've read those before and if you know the stories in Judges, maybe you're like, man, this would make a great TV series. It's going to be awesome. Like, why don't they do that? Or maybe you're sitting here and you're feeling this seems a little uncomfortable. Like the book of Joshua, we're not reading it, but if you've read it before, you know God's people go into the land and they start to take it over. And we're picking up in the middle of that conquest. And so before we dive into the book, we just, I want us to sit with this question. Um, why would God have his people fight the Canaanites? Why would God have his people fight the Canaanites? And that's an important question for us to ask if, whether you've been a Jesus follower for a long time or not, because this is the type of question that a lot of people in our society ask when they look at the Bible, specifically at the Old Testament. One of the most common objections to it is, 
hey, there's all this violence that God allows. And so we can't brush that under the rug. We have to talk about it. And so uh, we can't do an exhaustive conversation at this moment about, but there's a couple of things I want to just put on our radar screen that I think can help us as we dive into judges and as we process, because there's going to be a lot of fighting. There's going to be, the people are still in the midst of this conquest. And if we're honest, as modern people, for some of us, and maybe not all of us, but for some of us, it might make us feel a little uncomfortable. So why would God allow his people to go and fight the Canaanites? Like, what is this? Is this just an ethnic cleansing of the land? Because that's what some people see it as. Is God allowing a genocide to happen? Because people, that's what people have called this. Is God just having his people go on this big, massive, just, just slaughter fest? Like, what is happening here? So I think one of the key things first is we need to look at who the people of Canaan were. Like, who are the Canaanites? And there's two main things I want to point out to us. First, these people, they weren't the nicest people. These people, they were a morally corrupt and twisted society. If you read in the book of Leviticus, Leviticus 18, you can learn about these people. In Leviticus 18, it talks about the people in Egypt, and then it talks about the people in the promised land in Canaan. And it talks about how they are just a a sexually wild society. They are full of sexual abuse and corruption. They are, it's a dark and twisted place. We also learn that they worship idols And not only do they worship idols, but we learn that they offer child sacrifices to their idols. Canaan isn't a place you'd want to go on vacation. Canaan is a corrupt, twisted society full of false gods and full of not just false worship, but hey, this worship is so corrupted that they're taking their children and sacrificing them to idols. And God has been patient with these people. It's not like they messed up one day and God's like, all right, we're going to get rid of you. No, God has been patient with them for centuries. In other parts, uh, before the book of Judges and Joshua, we read about that, how God has been patiently uh, waiting for them to change, but they haven't. And so these people um, are not a good people, and they deserve justice to happen for the injustice that is happening in their land. The second thing I want us to process in regards to this, this fighting of the Canaanites is what was actually the motivation for the conquest? Like, what was it? Was it just God wants people to kill each other? Like, what's going on here? And if you look at the different passages throughout um, Exodus, uh, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers, the picture that I, I think comes up is this. It's that the motivation for this is that it was about ending the evil religious and cultural practices within the land. So we've already seen these people, they're corrupt, they're twisted, their practices are evil, they're not good. But if we look at, let's say, Exodus chapter 23, this is a a great passage, we can't look at all of it, but this is a great passage to look at what God tells his people to do in this conquest. And we can't sugarcoat it, he does tell them, hey, go in and fight these people. Like he does tell them to do that. He says, if you trust in me and are obedient to me, I will drive them out of the land. But two key things he tells them is this. He says, do not bow down to their gods or worship them or follow their practices. You must demolish them and break their sacred stones to pieces. He's pointing out the religious practices of the land. You you can't fall into that trap. In verse 32, he says, do not make a covenant with them or with their gods. Do not them live in your land or they will cause you to do what? To sin against me. 
because the worship of their gods will certainly be a snare to you. Remember God, he made a promise with his people. He made a covenant with them and he told them, hey, you're going to be a kingdom of priests to the world. He says, hey, if these people are still in the land, you're not going to be able to do that. Why? Because your sinful hearts are going to be ensnared by their gods. And so God wants them to drive these people out of the land, not just to ethnically cleanse the land, but to get rid of their corrupt moral and religious practices. And another reason why I think it's, it's, it's about the religious practices, it's about the heart of the people and not the ethnicity of the people, is we have stories like the story of Rahab. Now, if you're not familiar with that story, that's okay. In the beginning of Joshua, uh, Joshua sends spies into the city called Jericho. They're spying out the city. It's awesome. It's epic. It's cool. And they're spying it out, but they are in trouble. And a woman in the city named Rahab helps them escape. And so when Joshua and their forces come and they take over the city, Rahab is spared. And not just Rahab, but her whole family. Now, Rahab was a Canaanite woman, and she was a prostitute. So if there would have been anyone in the land who would have checked off, like, ethnically, we should kill you, or morally, we should kill you, it would have been Rahab. But because Rahab, she hears about the God of Israel, she turns and follows him, and she and her family are spared. They're saved. And so, again, it's about the heart posture of these people. It's about the religious um, worship of the land. And we have stories like Rahab and others where the people in the land turn and follow God, and they're spared. And so, again, it's not just going in and just slaughtering everybody. There were limits to this conquest. Another thing to point out is sometimes these stories don't always, uh, they're not always simple as they may seem. For example, in Joshua chapter 10, we read about two cities called Hebron and Deber, and it says that no Canaanites from those cities survived. Joshua and his forces come, and they just completely decimate them. Five chapters later then, we read that there are still Canaanites living in those two cities. Does anyone see the contradiction there? Like, is, am I the only one? Does that seem weird to us? I think it should. As modern people, it's like, okay, is there false news here? Like, what's going on here? Like, this, this doesn't seem okay. If you're going to record what happened, you need to record exactly what happened. But this is where, as modern people, I think we need to take a step back and come to this literature very humbly Because this literature was written in a specific time, in a specific place, in a specific way. This literature is ancient battle narrative, and it's written in that style of that day. For whatever reason, God chose that ancient people to record his story in the world, and they did it using the style of the day. And a common part of any any story is the different literary styles. And we, we know that. Like, for us, we have stories, fairy tales, you know, let's say, um, you know, um, once upon a time, or they might end and say, and everyone lived happily ever after. Like, see, there's these narrative cues in our modern stories, and we understand what's getting communicated. Like, oh, this is a fairy story. Just like that, in, in ancient Israel, there were these ancient battle narratives. And this, this is what we see happening in the book of Joshua and Judges, when it talks about completely decimating places, 
It's using exaggeration to basically do ancient trash talk. Like it's the way the ancient world was like, yo, we completely destroyed you. And we talk like that when we talk about football games or, or any sporting event. We talk about, we talk over the top, we talk to make sure everyone knows we won, you lost. And that's what they did in the ancient world. In fact, we have an, a tablet from, an, from Pharaoh Merneptah, all right? He lived in 1200 BC, and this is what Pharaoh Merneptah says. He says, Israel is laid waste. His seed is not. Basically, Israel is gone. There's none of them left. Now, is that true, literally? No, because if it was, we wouldn't have the Old Testament. Like, there would be no more stories if all, if all of Israel was completely destroyed. Yet Pharaoh said that. Why? Because that was the way they talked during this style of literature. So, all that being said, when we come to these stories, I think we need to take a humble posture, and we need to realize there's more going on here, I think, than just absolute bloodshed for no reason. There's reason behind it. And these stories were written in a specific style, and the people of the land could turn and follow God, and they could even stay in the land if they did that. Now, I don't think that totally gets rid of all the uncomfortableness of these stories. Um, For a lot of modern people, like I said, there's a lot of objection to the Bible because of the stories in Joshua and the stories we're about to read in Judges. But I think that there's more going on here than just if you read it a blank, uh, if you read it and just come to a quick conclusion of, man, God is just a moral monster. There's more going on. It's more about the heart of the people in the land than just God wanting bloodshed for bloodshed's sake. Okay? All right. That was already a lot. And we haven't even jumped into the judges yet. All right, we're about to jump in. And I'm excited about this, again, because I think this book has a lot to teach us. But as we go in, let's go in with this lens of, hey, God wanted his people to drive out the people that were living in the land. Why? Because... They were morally and religiously corrupt. God knew that if they stayed in the land, that he, they would cause his people to fall into sin. And that's not a good thing. Why? Because his people were meant to be a kingdom of priests to the rest of the world. So let's see how his people did. Let's dive in. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Oh, by the way, side note. If uh, you're on using the follow along on, and that's uh, if you're not familiar with what that is, that's a way you can get all the notes and stuff. Uh, there's a QR code on one of those next steps. Um, if you're interested in more of that conversation about why did God allow the the conquest of the Canaanites, there's a link in the follow along to a short article, and that article has some more points that you can dive into if you're interested in that. Again, that's on the follow along, but I encourage you to check that out if it's of interest to you. Okay, let's dive in. Judges 1, verses 1 to 2, it says, After the death of Joshua, the Israelites asked the Lord, Which tribe should go first to attack the Canaanites? And the Lord answered, Judah, for I have given them victory over the land. Okay, so far so good, right? They were meant to go into the land. They were meant to be obedient to God and drive out the people in the land. And here they are. Joshua's died. They're like, okay, who should go attack first? And God answers them, Judah. So far, so good. Um, we can't get to everything in, in Joshua, or excuse me, in this chapter. So we're going to skip down to verse 8 and just see how Judah did. And it says in Judah, uh, or Judges 1, 8 to 10, it says, The men of Judah attacked Jerusalem, 
and captured it, killing all its people and setting the city on fire. Then they went down to fight the Canaanites living in the hill country, the Negev and the western foothills. Judah marched against the Canaanites in Hebron, formerly called Kirith Arba, I think, defeating the forces of Shesheia, Haman, and Talmai. Judges is going to be a difficult book for all of us to read, okay? Here we have Judah having victory in the land. They're being obedient to God. They've attacked Jerusalem. They've killed all the people in it. Side note, if you pay attention today, Jerusalem's going to come up again, and there's still going to be people in the land, just case in point of ancient uh, battle narrative. But anyway, Judah is being faithful in the land. They're having conquest. They're doing what God has called them to do. Now, the story now takes kind of a weird twist. And rather than looking at the whole tribe of Judah, it zooms in on one family. And this is what it says in verses 12. Uh, It starts, it says, Caleb said, now this is the Caleb, if you're familiar with the story in Joshua. Caleb and Joshua were the two spies that went into the land originally and said, we should take it. And all the other spies said, no, we shouldn't. This is that Caleb, all right? So Caleb said, I will give my daughter Aksa in marriage to the one who attacks, attacks and captures Kirith Safir. Othniel, the son of Caleb's younger brother, Kenaz, was the one who conquered it. So Aksa became Othniel's wife. When Aksa uh, married Othniel, she urged him to ask her father for a field. As she got down off her donkey, Caleb asked her, what's the matter? She said, let me have another gift. You have already given me land in the Negev. Now please give me springs of water too. So Caleb gave her the upper and lower springs. That was exciting, right? Okay, this story is super weird for us as moderns. Like, great. Like, what is going, like, why do we need to know about Caleb and Othniel and Aksa? Now, this story, if you begin to see what's going on here, this family is awesome. They're going into the land, and Caleb was seeking to take over to drive the Canaanites out, just like God told them to do. Othniel rises to the occasion, and he does that. Aksa, she's like, hey, uh, Othniel, we need to ask my dad for fields. We need to then, she then asks him for springs of water. What they're doing is they're being totally obedient to God, because what's God called them to do? He's called them to go into the land, to drive out the people, and to settle in that land. That's exactly what they're doing. Their whole heart is in it. They're driving out the people, and Aksa is like, you know, I'm not just going to be in this land. I'm going to thrive in this land. Yo, Dad, give me a field. Oh, yeah, and I want some water. I want some springs. Like, she is fully settling in for the long haul because you need a field to raise your food, and you need water to water your food, to water your cattle, to water yourself. Like, they're totally going in, setting in roots, just like God had called them to do. Their heart is totally for God and being obedient to him. And this is important because, well, you'll see in just a second. Let's continue on. Let's see how, uh, how the story continues. So far, so good. But let's see if that continues. If we go to verse 19, it says, The Lord was with the people of Judah, and they took possession of the hill country. Awesome. But they failed to drive out the people living in the plains who had iron chariots. The town of Hebron was given to Caleb as Moses had promised. And Caleb 
drove out the people living there who were descendants of the three sons of Anak. Okay, there's an important word that just came up in this passage, and it's the word failed. So far, things have been going pretty well. Judah's been obedient, and now at this point, they've failed to drive out the people because there were chariots. And chariots were like the tanks of the ancient battle world. Like they were, like you didn't want to mess with chariots. Yet God had told them to drive them out, and now they haven't. They've failed. But Caleb and his family, they've continued to drive out the people. So now we have kind of two different stories set next to each other. We have Caleb and his family, and we have Judah. Judah's failed, but Caleb and his family hasn't. And now the, the, the narrator of the story is going to go, he's going to kind of pan the camera over the rest of the conquest, and we're going to see how did the rest of the tribes do. And this is what he says, continuing on in verse 21. He says, The tribe of Benjamin, however, failed to drive out the Jebusites who were living in Jerusalem. So to this day, the Jebusites live in Jerusalem among the people of Benjamin. So the tribe of Benjamin has failed. We continue on to verse 27, and it says, The tribe of Manasseh failed to drive out the people living in Beth Shan, Tanakh, Dor, Eblam, Megiddo, and all their surrounding settlements because the Canaanites were determined to stay in that region. When the Israelites grew stronger, they forced the Canaanites to work as slaves, but they never did drive them completely out of the land. And then if we continue on, we can't read all of them. We don't have time. But then we see just a number of failures. We see the tribe of Ephraim failed, the tribe of Zebulun, the tribe of Asher, the tribe of Naphtali. Do you see a pattern going on here? Every tribe is failing to do what God has called them to do. The, the chapter ends with the tribe of Dan, and it says this. Um, as for the tribe of Dan... The Amorites forced them back into the hill country and would not let them come down into the plains. So they failed, right? Yeah, they didn't drive them out. It doesn't say that. But here, now we don't just have God's people driving out the Canaanites or, you know what, the Canaanites were too determined, so we kind of lived together. Or, hey, we made them slaves, so we kind of did what God called us. No, not really. But here we have the Amorites forcing the Israelites out. So there's been a complete reversal because they keep failing to trust God and to do what he's called them to do. So we have Caleb and his family. They drive out the Canaanites, but every other tribe is failing to do what God's called them to do. Now, does this, is this really a big deal? Let's sit with that for a little bit. Is it a big deal that they failed to drive out the Canaanite people? Like, because if you read that passage, and I encourage you to read chapter one, the Israelites did, a, like, they did their best, right? Like, God has brought them into the promised land, and they're living in the promised land. They're not slaves in Egypt anymore. They've come to the place God promised them. And they tried, right? I mean, the Judah ran into chariots. Like, the tribe of Judah ran into chariots. Like, that's kind of a, a good excuse why you'd stop fighting, right? Like, chariots are a bad thing. Or the other tribes said, hey, they were just too determined, and so we can live in peace together. Or some of them were like, hey, we can have a prophet here. Like, we'll make them slaves. And so 
We're, we kind of drove them out. We subdued them. We're kind of doing what God told us to do. And we get some free labor. Like, that seems like a, a logical thing that you could arrive at, right? Or, hey, the Amorites were just too strong. They, they, they pushed us out. Like, we, we tried. We gave it our best. And it would be easy, I think, for us to read these and see all the reasons that are given for why each tribe failed. It'd be easy for us to see them as very plausible, logical, maybe even sensible reasons. And I think it would be easy for us to say, you know what? At least they're in the land. At least they tried. You know, the generation before didn't even go into the land. They were too scared. This generation's in the land and they tried. But now we're going to go to chapter 2, and in chapter 2, the story really turns, and now we're going to get God's interpretation of what's just happened. So let's see. Does God think they did good, or does God think they did bad? Let's see. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. It says, The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bachim and said to the Israelites, I brought you out of Egypt into this land that I swore to give your ancestors. And I said, I would never break my covenant with you. For your part, you were not to make any covenants with the people living in this land. Instead, you were to destroy their altars. Okay? So that's kind of God recapping, hey, this is what was supposed to happen. I saved you. I made a covenant with you. I brought you into this land. And you knew what you were supposed to do, not to make any covenant with these people and to destroy their altars. Now we get God's opinion of what happened. And this is what he says. He says, but you disobeyed my command. Why did you do this? So now I declare that I will no longer drive out the people living in your land. There will be thorns in your sides and their gods will be a constant temptation to you. It's pretty rough, isn't it? God's people were literally fighting battles. They came up against chariots. What do you mean they were disobedient? Like that's, is that cruel? Like is that, is that too far? Like didn't they do their best? Didn't they at least make them slaves so they could subdue them and couldn't be ruled by them? Like didn't they at least partially obey God? You know, maybe not fully, but shouldn't they get some participation points for at least trying? That's not how God sees it. God sees what they did as, an, as a failure to obey him. All their reasons, though pl- seemingly plausible, seemingly logical, seemingly sensible, sensible were, were still obedient, were disobedient to him. And this is what I think is going on here. The Israelites said they couldn't, but God says they wouldn't. Israelites are saying, hey, we can't do this. There's chariots in the land. Hey, we can't do this. They're too determined. Hey, we couldn't do it because we could make them slaves. Or hey, we couldn't do it because the Amorites were so strong, they drove us out of the land. But when God looks at it, he says, actually, you wouldn't do it. Caleb and his family, they were willing to be fully obedient, to go in and to fight against the Canaanites because they trusted God completely. Because if we go back in the story, and we don't have time to look at all these passages, but God constantly tells his people, hey, when I bring you into the land, 
I will drive them out for you. I will be there with you. I will conquer these people. God says that over and over again, that he is going to do this. All they have to do is show up and trust and just intentionally keep moving towards God. And they will have victory. Not because of their own strength, but because of God's strength. And so God sees their failure in the land as disobedience because they wouldn't trust him. So it's not that they couldn't, it's that in their heart they wouldn't. And this is an area where I think we need to stop and now we need to begin to process our own hearts and our own posture to God and the things he calls us to do. And I want to ask this question, where, where am I saying I can't, but God is saying, actually, you won't? Where in your life, in your discipleship to God, are, are we saying, and I'm including myself in this, where am I saying, you know what? I can't do this, God. This is too hard. This is too difficult. Do you know what other responsibilities I have? Do you know what's going on? But really, God's saying, actually, I don't want to hear the excuses because you can always find excuses. What's really going on, Andrew, is actually in your heart, you just don't want to do this. You don't want to trust me. See, God's people, the Israelites, they were meant to go into the land and to push into the battles, to go forth into the hardship and to drive out the Canaanites. And I think we can similarly think of the sin issues in our life, the different opportunities in our life, like the land of Canaan. There are things in our heart, areas of sin, where God calls us to to resist those things and we need to push into that and say, you know what, I need to drive this out of my life. Or, hey, there's this opportunity, and it's, man, it's big, and it looks scary. It looks like chariots, and it's just, I don't want to do this. But God says, no, I'm calling you to this. Trust me. And our God tells us in 1 Corinthians 10 that, that, that there's no temptation that we will ever face that it will be too much for us. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. No temptation to seize you except what is common to man. But God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. He tells us that. And I believe in our lives, and I'll speak for myself, there are places in my heart that oftentimes I know God is saying, hey, this is a sin issue, Andrew. You need to work on that. Or hey, this is an opportunity to, to, to build my kingdom here. And I say, you know what? I can't do this, God, but really it's me saying I won't. And a couple of places that have been um, common areas for me, and I think can be common areas for a lot of us, areas where we say we can't, but when really we say we won't, there's a couple. And one is the area of forgiveness. Forgiveness is one of the hardest things I think any of us are called to do as Jesus followers. It's one of the things that is really hard I've had moments in my life where I've had people hurt me or my family, and I've known God is calling me to forgive this person, and I want to dig my heels in, and I want to put my fists at God and say, God, do you know what they've done to me? Do you know what they said to me? Do you know how they hurt my family? God, if I forgive them, I'm letting them off the hook. God, they deserve me not to forgive them. And I want to just sit there and come up with excuse and excuse and excuse of why I won't forgive them. And then I've had to have God wiggle into my heart and help me realize, you know what? Andrew, do you know what you and the rest of humanity's done to me? And yet I've chosen to forgive you? 
of course this is going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. This is like the Israelites going into the land. They had to fight battles. This is challenging, Andrew, but I'm calling you to forgive that person. So rather than say, I couldn't, I had to say, you know what? I wouldn't do this. And then I had to step in and say, I'm going to work on trying to forgive this person. And I don't think forgiveness is always a one and done, just like a snap of the fingers, like I forget, like forgive and forget. I don't think that's a, a reality. It's a process. It can take time. But there's a difference between saying, I'm going to embrace the hardship. I'm going to step into this because God calls me to it rather than I have all these excuses. I'm just going to sit back and stay here. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like there's a difference between those two things. There's the, the Judah mentality of there's chariots, I'm good. And there's the Caleb mentality of let's go get them. So forgiveness, I think, is one place. I think t- just any sinful temptation, whether it's, Uh, addictions to substances or to pornography or uh, maybe you struggle with your time management or laziness, uh, overeating, whatever it is. There's all sorts of things. The areas of, it's like pockets of little Canaanites living in the land, living in our heart, living in our life that God calls us to say no to, to to work towards this, to fighting and to pushing out of our lives. And I'm not saying any of these things are easy but I'm saying they're good because they're the battles God has called us to. And just like God told his people, the Israelites, hey, I would be with you. I'm going to help you in this. Our God is with us in all the sin battles and issues in our heart and in our life. He's not going to for- forsake us. He's going to help us through those things. Even if there are sin issues that we're going to be fighting the rest of our lives, I believe it's better for us to be pushing into those battles and seeking to intentionally and proactively resist and say no to those things rather than just sit back and say, you know what, God, I was just born this way. I can't say no to that. You know what, I've struggled with this for 20 years now. I'm never going to change. You know what, God, you died on the cross. I've accepted you as my Lord and Savior, myself. My eternity's good. So you know what, I'll just live out the rest of my earthly life and just kind of stay as the status quo. Like, That's the temptation because that's easy. And as people, I think we like easy. Or at least I know I like easy. If I can find an easier way to do something, boom, I'm doing it. Because it takes less time, it takes less effort, it takes less heart. And life is challenging and it's difficult. But good things often come through embracing the difficult, I believe. And I'm not saying, and like I said, none of this is going to be easy. I'm not saying the Israelites' battle in the land was going to be a cakewalk. It was challenging. They were, I mean, imagine being then. Like, we could be God's followers then, and God's like, hey, I need you to go physically fight these people. Thankfully, we don't have to do that. But I think the battle can be just as hard for us now. So I'm not saying it's going to be easy. And I'm also not saying, hey, when we fail, because we're all going to fail, Those things don't have to define us. Our God died on the cross, so then those failures, that sin in our heart and our life doesn't have to define us anymore. But the reality is he calls us to still follow after him. And obedience isn't always convenient. Discipleship isn't always fun. Following Jesus requires sacrifice. Being a Christian is a daily battle. I totally, totally believe that. That following Jesus is a daily battle battle. Just like it was a, for, the, for the Israelites going into the promised land, 
for us today. We have these daily battles. But I know for myself, how often do I actually wake up and say, okay, what battle am I going to be fighting today? No, I usually get up and I think about my to-do list. I think about my work. I think about rather than all the the things going on in my heart that God wants me to wage war against. Now, this daily battle is not a daily battle over our eternal salvation. I want to make that clear. If you are a Jesus follower here today, meaning you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, and you've accepted him, and you have that forgiveness of your sins, your eternity is secure. Like that battle is won. It's been won by Jesus. We don't have to worry about that. But we still live in a fallen world, and we still live in a place where there's the enemy of sin lurking that wants to lead us away from our God so we don't live for him, so we don't tell others about him. And this, this reality comes up in the New Testament a number of times. One of the best places is found in Galatians chapter 5. And this is what it says in Galatians chapter 5 about this daily constant battle we as Christians are, have. It says, so I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you're not free to carry out your good intentions. The Apostle Paul wrote this. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, the reality as Jesus followers is the Holy Spirit is in you. And he wants to lead you this way. But because you aren't fully with God yet, because Jesus hasn't returned yet, there is still this sin nature in us that yes, the power of our eternity, God's already conquered that, like we're safe, but it's still here in our present life. And while the Spirit wants us to go this way, our sinful nature wants us to go that way, and they're always butting heads. I have fallen into the trap in my, in my walk with Jesus where I often just feel like following Jesus is so passive. Where I'm just like, yeah, I, I memorize the verses, I go to church, I do the good Christian thing. Well, all the time, roaring in my heart is the Holy Spirit and my, the sin nature pulling me in two opposite directions. And when I stop and think about, wow, all the decisions of my past week, all the attitudes of my past week, all the, the, the times where I sinned and all the times where I said no to sin, like there was something deeper going on inside of me all the time. And I could either resist the allure of my sin nature or I could give into it. And so I think as Jesus followers, we need to constantly not lose sight of the fact that being a Jesus follower is a daily battle. In fact, Jesus calls us in Luke 19 when he's describing what it means to follow him. He calls us to some radical extremes. He says, he tells us to a crowd. He says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross daily and follow me. Meaning, hey, if you want to be my disciple, it's not just about going to church. It's not just about looking good for me. It's not just about memorizing the verses. It's actually about this sacrificial life. We say no to sin, and we say yes to the leading of the Spirit, and we live for God. That's what Aksa and Othniel and Caleb did. The rest of Israel said, you know what? I'm going to sit back, and I'm just going to, there's chariots in the land. 
These people are too determined. I'm comfortable. We're in the promised land. What's the big deal? God doesn't want us to have half-hearted discipleship. God calls us to whole-hearted discipleship. A discipleship that is fully moving towards our God. The reality is, if we're not moving towards our God, we're going to be drifting away from him. Again, we can't lose our salvation, but in our life, if we're not moving towards a deeper relationship with God, we're going to be moving farther away from him. We're going to become less useful for building his kingdom. We're going to give into the, na- the desires of our flesh, into the different sin nature, and into our sin nature, and that's just going to cause a lot of hurt and hardship for us and for the people around us. And as we wrap up today, I want us to see this reality. The book of Judges, if you read through the whole thing, you get this picture of the consequences of half-hearted discipleship played out. Because the end of the book of Judges, this is kind of a spoiler, so if you've never read the book and you want to, you might want to cover yours. But this is how it ends, okay? This is the last verse in the book of Judges. It says, In those days Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. When we start the book of Judges, as we move into the stories about the judges and whatnot, the people of Israel still look like the people of Israel. They're still following after God, at least somewhat. But as you move through the different generations of judges, you go from good judges to okay judges to not so great judges to judges that are kind of terrible people to eventually at the end of the book, you have these stories I think they're the most graphic and horrible stories in the whole, whole book because they're about the corruption of the entire Israelite people. And we see them committing sexual abuses, killing each other, going after false gods. By the end of the book of Judges, the Israelites look like the Canaanites. If you read through it, you see this picture where they're just shifting from being the people of God to now they look like the people who are in the land. And I believe that's what happens when we don't embrace full-hearted discipleship. When we just allow the excuses to pile up, it's a slow fade where we drift away from God and soon we begin to look more like the world than we do like Jesus. So that's why I think it's so important for us to think about this reality of our discipleship as a daily battle and what the book of Judges can teach us. Now I'd like to invite the band to come up and start getting ready, because we're about to sing a song in just a second. But as we do, as they're coming up, the last thing I want to point out in that verse, if we could put it up one more time, it said, in those days Israel had no king. There was no king in the land. All the judges we see coming up through the book of Judges, they're all flawed people. God uses them to do amazing things, but in the end, they're not good enough to save the people of Israel. That statement isn't true for us. We have a king, and he is fully alive and well. Jesus, guys, he has already died for us. The battle for our eternity is won. If he was willing to die for our eternity, of course he's going to be there to help us with our present. With the daily battles he calls us to fight against, whether that's sin in our life or opportunities to live for him, our king is there for us. And I've heard it said, we worship our way away from God, and then we have to worship our way back to him.
Just like the Israelites, they worshiped the false gods in the land and that drifted them away from God. We do the same thing each and every day. And so this week, I'd encourage you, maybe take 10 minutes and just process, am I, do I look more like Jesus or do I look more like the world? Am I having half-hearted discipleship or whole-hearted discipleship right now? And then maybe take 10 minutes and just worship our King because He is here to help us through those battles. Now, I'd like to encourage all of us to keep coming back for the book of Judges because we're going to learn so much over the next couple weeks. But let's take this heart posture of wholehearted discipleship into these next couple weeks because the Israelites didn't and it led to a lot of terrible things. But we can have a different heart posture because our King is alive He is well, and he is with us. Amen? All right, let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for today. Thank you so much for the fact that we can gather. I pray that as we sing this song in just a second, may we worship you wholeheartedly. May you be our king. May we worship you now and always. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. May we trust in that this week. In your name I pray. Amen.